Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So these are people who are seditionists. They don't accept the legitimacy of the state, of the government, of the institutions, and they would like to overthrow them. The United States is facing a challenge we haven't confronted since the Civil War. On January 6th, we experienced a physical assault against our democracy. And a significant segment of society continues to support the assault, not our democracy. This is too many people to wish away. It's too many people to shun. It's even too many people to cancel. So what do we do about this extreme polarization? How do we live alongside people who reject our system of government? How can we get back to healthier kinds of political disagreement? Here at Solvable, we're going to take a deeper look at the problem of American polarization. As befits the approach of the show, we're going to have a series of conversations focused on solutions and making things better. Our question is what works to reduce extremism and division in terms of finding common ground and building bridges, in terms of redesigning social media, and in terms of political leadership. Last week, we heard Ann Applebaum talk to Juan Manuel Santos about the process of reconciliation with former guerrillas after Colombia's long, horrific civil war. Today, I'm going to talk with Ann herself. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and expert on the former Soviet bloc. Ann has been looking at vulnerable democracies around the world, and she has some ideas about what has and hasn't worked in other countries. This will sound a little strange, um, but another really interesting example of a place that depolarized is actually Canada. So some solutions may be closer than we realize. I'm Ann Applebaum. I'm one of the hosts of the Solvable podcast. I'm a staff writer for The Atlantic, and I believe that political polarization is solvable. Hi, Ann. 
<laughs> Hi, Jacob. <laughs> it's clear that we are in unprecedented territory here in the United States. And I wanted to kind of start the conversation um, just by asking you to be as precise as possible in naming this phenomenon and possibly comparing it to other places. Do you, do you call it a breakdown of democracy? Do you call it polarization? What are we living through right now? Polarization is clearly, you know, a good word to use, but other words have been used in the past. Division, breaking up of, of political unity leading towards civil war. I think the more interesting question is what to call the group of people who were at the Capitol on January the 6th and those in the country who support them. Because this is not the same thing as the Republican Party. It's not the same thing as conservatives. Um, this is, in fact, not a conservative group. It's a radical group. And it's also very clear to understand what they were doing there. They were not Republicans attacking Democrats. They were actually attacking Congress itself, the institution. They were trying to prevent Congress from recognizing and naming the next president. This was actually an anti-institutional, anti-systemic group, which is not something we're accustomed to in American history, or at least not, not, not since the Civil War. But it is something that you can see in other times and places. Um, you can see it, for example, in Northern Ireland, where there was, during the era of the Troubles, there was a group of people who lived in Northern Ireland who didn't accept the legitimate government of Northern Ireland and became, uh, you know, terrorists or supporters of terrorists because they wanted to overthrow it. Um, you can look at a country like Colombia, where you see an insurgency that fought for 50 years living in the jungle and living off kidnapping and drug dealing because they didn't accept the legitimacy of the government. And although those are more extreme versions than what we have, that's really what we're talking about. And so then the question is whether is the best word to use insurgency or insurrectionist. Some people have had an argument about whether to say fascist. And of course, there are ways in which this group resembles fascism of the 1930s. I don't think that's a useful term because it conjures up all kinds of other things. And, you know, we're not talking about mass murder or anything like that. And, and, I, and I feel it's a distracting term. And the term I settled on in, in, in a couple of things I've written recently is actually seditionists. Um, so mm. these are people who are seditionists. They don't accept the, you know, the legitimacy of the state, of the government, of the institutions, and they would like to overthrow them. And so then the question is how the rest of us deal with that. Even in that, and, and I agree, that's a, that's a useful term here. And I think seditionist rather than secessionist, because these people are not trying to start their own country or break away into a different political body as in the, the Confederacy during the Civil War. But even that term, seditionist, can include everyone from the fairly large se section of the population that will, in response to a poll, say they think the election was stolen a much smaller segment of the population that would support violence, a smaller proportion than that that would be violent. And then maybe even within that, you know, this very strange um, fantasy land of the of the QAnon people, um, which is more like, you know, a cult within the seditionists. Would you would you describe it that way in terms of those kind of concentric circles? Yes, although what interests me is one particular group. Namely, I'm interested in the people who sympathized with the storming of the Capitol. In other words, you know, there is a group of people who think 
Trump probably won the election or anyway, somehow the election was unfair. But then there's a, a narrower group of people who actually think the system should be overthrown. And I say narrow, it's not that narrow. One poll that was done pretty soon after January the 6th showed something like 20%, I think it's 21% of Americans said they supported that. They supported the the insurrection. Hmm. Even, even assuming that not all those people pay that much attention to politics, and some of them have probably since then changed their minds. And so on. even if we say it's 10%, you know, 10% of the country, that's a very large number who don't think that our political institutions work, who don't see any point in cooperating with them, who presumably don't see much point in voting or in participating in normal politics, and they would support efforts to undermine them. That's not a problem that we've had in recent history. So I guess the the question you get to right away is, take that 21% or whatever it is, where do we fight them? Where do we ignore them? How do we deal with them? So the lessons from countries that have had an experience like this, so countries, again, that have had an insurgency or a terrorist movement within their, you know, within their borders, very often the things that you think will work, like it would, wouldn't it be so great if we all got together and just debated it all out? There are a number of charities in the U.S. that actually, um, there's a famous one called Braver Angels that brings people together, you know, blue and red team people together in rooms and has them argue or try. I mean, most of that, while maybe it's, you know, useful for a few people, is actually pointless. Because when you have people who see the world through such completely different lenses, you will not get them to agree on politics or on anything existential if you get them in a room together. Much more useful, and again, this is counterintuitive and it's not a solution that lots of people like, um, at least when they first encounter it, is it's much better to change the subject. In other words, get people to work together, to do projects together and do things together that are constructive, but without talking about or discussing the very the existential issues that divide us. And so when this has been done in towns in Northern Ireland, it means something like, you know, the town builds a community center or they build a road or they organize a theater festival and members from both communities participate. And while they're participating, they're talking about the road or the community center, and they're not talking about who should be in charge of Ireland, should it, Northern Ireland, should it be Ireland or Great Britain? I can imagine, for example, in the U.S., a way you could, I mean, for example, we need to have security at state capitals. State capitals have been the site of some violent protests recently. So a useful thing to do would be to have a meeting where you got members of the different communities from the far right and the far left and mainstream politics, and you got them together and said, let's think about how we create safety at our, you know, around the Ohio State Capitol. They're not focused on the things they're protesting about. They're focusing on how they create security at the Ohio State Capitol. And that doesn't mean they hate each other any less, but it does mean that the following day when there are demonstrations there, they might not kill each other. You know, the goal is prevention of violence. And the, and yeah. the goal is living alongside one another, even when we, we don't agree. But don't we need some sense that this was an extraordinary event and that the people who supported it 
need to be made accountable for it and need to to realize that what they did was not acceptable. I mean, in South Africa, for example, you know, there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And in post-communist societies, you know, there was certainly a lot of delayed justice and denied justice. But, but you know, in many of those countries, as you've written about, you know, there was some sense of holding people accountable. To just sort of go back to normal and kind of Ignore it. I mean, I don't think you're saying that the people who participated in violence in the Capitol shouldn't be prosecuted or that we should drop all that. But it's certainly true that anybody who broke into the Capitol or committed crimes at the Capitol should be prosecuted. And I'm absolutely in favor of that. And I also very much hope that former president will be impeached. The trouble is that we are talking about a really large number of people. As I said, we might be talking about 10 to 20 percent of the country. You know, you always have in post-communist and post-dictatorship situations, you always have some kind of trade-off or balance between the demands of justice and the demands of practicality. You know, what can you, you know, how many people can you try from the old regime before you inflame the supporters of the old regime and cause a backlash? I mean, if you look at history, you can see how this has been done well and badly in different places. I mean, a famous example of where it was done really badly was in Iraq, where we conducted, as, as the, when the Americans were occupying Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein, we conducted a program called debathification, which was all the members of the Saddam's bath party were, you know, lost their jobs, were sent home, you know, were, were, were held accountable for the regime. And the result was that many of them reformed, regrouped, and became the terrorist insurgencies that fought American troops for, for years afterwards. Because we're talking about so many people, that's not a great model for us. I really understand. I mean, believe me, I understand the urge to want to shun people, to block them, to say you can't hold office, to um, to try and keep them out of public life. All I'm saying is that that's probably not going to work. And the hmm. and the evidence from other countries, you know, where you've had big insurgencies. I mean, again, Northern Ireland. You know, the British tried to you know, eliminate the the IRA for many years through harsh, tough police enforcement, through, you know, fighting, through infiltration of the communities. And one of the main results was that the support and sympathy for the IRA grew and grew and grew. And it really only wasn't until they changed tactics um, and they began talking, you know, in a different way about accommodating the, not just the IRA, but the, the Catholic community more broadly in Northern Ireland, that they began to get a sea change in terms of public attitudes. You know, this is too many people to wish away. It's too many people to shun. It's even too many people to cancel, you know, and prevent them all, you know, have them all be fired. I mean, it's, it's simply not going to work. And so we need to begin looking at some other tactics, you know, in, in which we can somehow live together. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. 
Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. How do you plan to handle this at a personal level? I mean, I've had all these fantasies going on inside my head. I mean, I was, you know, years ago, once at a dinner party with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. And I sort of said to myself, I'll never do that again. You know, if I'm ever in a room with them on a social occasion, I'll, you know, I'll storm out. You know, I won't I won't break bread with them. I've been thinking, you know, in the old days, like you, I would go on a lot of panel discussions and TV appearances where you're pitted as the in my case, the liberal opposite of conservative. And I've sort of said to myself, well, I'm not going to do that with people who rejected the election results because I feel like they're outside the boundary of acceptable democratic values. And, you know, I won't, I, I don't think those people deserve equal time. That's my emotional feeling. I hear, absolutely hear what you're saying. I think you're right that it's not going to be productive to shun those people more aggressively, contribute to the polarization from the other side. But honestly, I'm not quite sure how to deal with it because I'm so enraged by by people who've taken that position, including a majority of the Republicans in Congress, that I don't know how I would handle being around them. I mean, I think the way one deals with it personally depends on who you are and what I mean, what your role is. I mean, I think you as a journalist are well within your rights to say I won't be on a panel with someone who supported the insurrection or who didn't recognize who won the election. And I might well agree with you on that, actually. Um, I certainly had a rule at the time of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014. I kept getting put on television programs with spokesmen for the Russian government who would deny that the invasion was happening even while it was happening. I mean, you could see it happen. And I finally drew a line through that. I said, I just, you know, I'm not going to waste time talking to people who want to pretend that there's an alternate reality happening. And I think, you know, you're within your rights to do that. I think the harder question for a lot of people, and I've been asked this a lot and I have a, you know, it touches me personally, is what you do with old friends 
or relatives or parents or people who you're very close to who have bought into some piece of that alternate reality. In some cases, I've heard from people who have relatives who have started following the QAnon conspiracy. How do you cope with that? And then we're in the realm of sort of a different piece of sociology and experience, and that's the, that's the realm of exit counseling. What is the advice for people you'd like to help get out of QAnon? Some of the advice there is, is an individual version of what I just said. In other words, change the subject, find other things to talk about. And then some of the advice is try and help people to see the contrast between the reality all around them and the false reality, the alternative reality that they're seeing online, which is the which is what the, the problem is in in America. So the the version of events that they're reading on, you know, whatever it is, Newsmax or or Facebook or Gab or the Discord channel, whatever, whichever piece, whichever social media they're seeing it on try and present them constantly with with alternatives and try also to help them see that there is a future for them in America run by Joe Biden and a Democratic Congress. Because many of these people have come to feel, and you can see this and hear it in some of the things the Republican congressman said, you know, they've come to feel that, you know, and how, how disingenuous or real this is, you'll have to, you know, it's very hard to know. But that Biden's presidency represents the end of a certain kind of America, the end of a way of life. It's something they can't reconcile themselves to. And so it's sort of our job as their friends and their relatives to show them how they can reconcile themselves, you know, in the way that Colombian insurgents need to be offered some path back to a legal existence in Colombia. They need to be brought back from the jungle and retrained and helped to get new jobs and I'm not saying this is the same process, but there's some parallel process that we should use towards people who we know and who we're close to who are inside these cults. But I guess two thoughts about that. I mean, one, you, you know, you talked to um, Juan Manuel Santos, the, the Nobel Prize winner, former president of Colombia, you know, for this program. You know, that is a, a very different situation in the sense that the rebels had been lost. The Santos government was being magnanimous towards them in its victory, recognizing, as I think he said, that there was there was a trade-off between peace and justice and saying, let's get peace, even if it's at the expense to some extent of immediate justice for these people who've done terrible things. But, you know, they weren't dealing with a majority of the opposition party. They were dealing with something more like a remnant cult. That's true. In that sense, they were luckier, although we're, we're not yet talking about the scale of violence that the FARC, this is the Colombian rebels, um, committed yeah. in, in Colombia. We're not talking about a um, illegal drug dealing, kidnapping insurgency. So that so that's also that also makes the story a little bit different. What you're now asking is a slightly different problem, which is the problem of how we, you know, what happens to the Republican Party, you know, and, and here I think it's in our interests as outsiders to the party as as you know or former members of the party as some some people are some of my friends are or even people who are still nominally in the party there the task is to win the battle for the heart and soul of the party and bring it back to you know even if even if it's still dis, you disagree with it even if it's still um, you don't agree with their policies on judges or abortion we just want them to respect the Constitution. We want them to to respect um, the rules of rational discourse. And so it's therefore on all of us to try to bring the party back there. And I think, for example, 
What does that mean for people who aren't in the party? It means praising, thanking, respecting, giving time to, giving TV time to those Republicans who are willing to fight against the um, the anti-constitutional seditionists. Um, and even though it's people you might not like, you might not, you know, Liz Cheney might not be your cup of tea, you know. Um, certainly McConnell is not many Democrats' <laughs> um, cup of tea, but giving him space on, you know, in the media and letting him say, praise Cheney and denounce, um, you know, the QAnon members of Congress is really important. So, I mean, this is really a battle that's best won inside that party. And actually, this brings me to another, you know, another lesson of countries like Northern Ireland and Colombia is that people like you and me may not be the best um, messengers for Republicans. I mean, they may not, they're just not going to listen to us, you know, in our view of the world. So who are the best messengers then? People inside their community. People like that are best positioned to bring the party back, you know, in the direction of respecting the Constitution and away from sedition. And and so... But that presumes an outcome, Anne, where the Republican Party over time or at some time sort of returns to relative normality, returns to reality. And sometimes parties are so split over something fundamental that they break up. I mean, the Whig Party before Lincoln, you know, couldn't be contained pro-slavery and anti-slavery factions, you know, which is gave birth to the Republican Party in the first place. One argument on the other side would be the, the difference between Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, Lisa Murkowski, Liz Cheney, even on the one hand, and, you know, Kevin McCarthy is the leader of the party, but all the people who have taken these consistent votes on Trump's side, rejecting the legitimacy of the election, that that split is, you can't bridge that divide. Uh, and that the party has to split. Either the moderate people leave the Republican Party and form some new party, or they capture the party, in which case the, the Trump people are probably going to leave the party themselves. That would not be a bad outcome, um, if, if I may say so. I mean, I mean, and that, I believe, is the outcome that a lot of constitutional Republicans are hoping for. I mean, look, if we lived in a political system that had slightly different rules, we would have more than one party, more than two parties, sorry, and the Republican Party would have already split, and we would have a far-right party, and we would have a center-right party, which is what lots of European countries have. Because of the nature of our voting system, it's much more difficult in the United States. But, but yeah, one outcome might well be that the party splits and, you know, one side or the other wins. And our role as outsiders is to help the constitutional Republicans win. Where do you see depolarization taking place, even on a very small scale? Where do you see this culture war divide or, or fundamental political divide being bridged in the sense of people working together on local issues or things they, they still have shared interest in supporting? So in the United States, my sense is um, that that does take place at, at the local and city level quite a lot. Um, that that Republicans and Democrats are often capable of working together, for, you know, as I say, whatever it is, fixing the potholes or fixing the roads. But in fact, I often have the sense that politics in the U.S., even state politics, which can be quite nasty, um, but certainly city level, municipal, local politics is a lot better and a lot healthier and a lot more functional than national politics. And precisely because national politics has become 
You know, it's a realm where people perform and express their identities, where they choose sides in the culture war. When we're talking about pollution in the local river, you can get cooperation. Yeah. What what country, you, you talked about Northern Ireland as a place where, you know, you'd seen this taking place. What country do you think has been the most effective at depolarizing or reducing fundamental sectional or cultural tensions? This will sound a little strange, um, but another really interesting example of a place that depolarized is actually Canada. Um, as you have all forgotten, there used to be a Quebec, Quebec separatist Quebec movement, absolutely. and it had a violent element, and it was very angry, and there was a part of Quebec that was very embittered. This was the French-speaking part of Quebec that wanted to secede from the rest of Canada. And what the Canadians did to solve that problem, it took a decade, was they they literally divided it up into littler issues. They created lots and lots of committees to discuss them. The language issue, you know, the residence issue, the history issue. They created about three dozen think tanks dedicated to just this problem. Sent lots of academics to write books about it. They involved everybody in the discussion of every detail. And I'm telling you, everyone got so bored of it, it became <laughs> the most tedious subject. And everyone knew the ins and outs so well that the, the thing diffused itself. It became boring. Once it wasn't my identity as a French Canadian versus your identity as an English Canadian, and once it was about what language do we speak in elementary school and what percentage of signs have to be in which language, once it was at the nitty gritty level of, you know, policy level, it became much less interesting and people were much less angry about it. And a lot of problems turned out to be solvable. It's a really interesting comparison because the Quebecois were you know, poorer than the average Canadians. They, you know, they felt culturally oppressed and it was a nationalistic movement. Um, and, you know, while not directly comparable to Trumpism, in certain respects, it was a similar sector of society making demands uh, against what they saw as, as an elite that was oppressing them in cultural terms. Yeah, that's a that's a good comparison. Um, there's also always, you know, an urban rural split, which is a little bit what we have um, in America, too. Although you have to be very careful with these stereotypes. Um, there was a very, very good survey done that looked very closely at some, the nearly 200 people who are at the Capitol who have been arrested and therefore we have their identity, you know, we know who they are and they have. And it turns out that many of them are not the stereotype of the Trumper who you think they are. They were not necessarily from red states. They were often from blue states where they felt themselves to be embattled minorities. They were often middle class. Quite a lot of them run small companies and small businesses. Interestingly, small businesses badly affected by the pandemic in some cases. They were middle aged. They were they were middle class. They certainly had enough money to travel to Washington, stay in hotels and show up at the Capitol. So they were not it, it is it is wrong to think of this group as as the poorest Americans. I mean, they they most certainly are not. Absolutely. Now, one thing that is obviously different from the circumstances we were just talking about in Colombia and, and Quebec and even Northern Ireland is um, the role of media and particularly social media. Um, I don't think in any of those situations you had the equivalent of the kind of partisan media driving the distinction for, for sort of fun and profit the way Fox News does, or obviously Facebook at the scale it is now as a way to, for people to isolate themselves 
uh, in their own viewpoint and kind of create, you know, self-sustaining cults impervious to information from the outside. What I know you've thought a lot about this. What do you think the way is of coping with the media impact in the other direction promoting polarization? So first of all, the phenomenon of very partisan media was not unknown and in, in, in the societies we've been discussing, that's a familiar one. But you're right that the the phenomenon of social media and actually the internet more broadly, because it's really not just Facebook, it's a broader phenomenon, is a new one. And what's different about it is that it really does allow people to live in alternate realities. I mean, you can live online, you can get all of your you know, your um, sense of who you are online, your identity. You can become very popular and be liked online by people you don't even know in real life. And you can get all kinds of sense of pleasure from connection and and approval, you know, online that you can't get in the real world. And so it has a, um, that is a very important and very, it does play a very toxic and complicated role. I am very, um, you know, I believe very deeply in, um, in both in the possibility and the necessity of social media regulation. I am actually writing about it right now. It's a big project. Though I would like to stress that this is the, the, the real question is not about content and, you know, who's going to decide, you know, whether the president gets to have a Twitter feed or not, and, you know, or who's going to regulate what content Facebook puts up. The real questions are much deeper, you know, is there a way to regulate the algorithms that decide who sees what and that that enable, uh, make it possible for people to live in alternate realities? You know, can we imagine different kinds of social media, you know, a sort of public service social media, a BBC of social media um, that could at least offer some people alternatives so that there are ways to connect with people whose rules are transparent and open um, in the way that we would like democratic debate to be transparent and open and are not where the, you know, um, Facebook engineers aren't experimenting on us all the time to find out which algorithm keeps us on the site longer or makes us like the site longer. Creating an internet that, that reflects democratic values and the values of that prioritize rational conversation and civic debate and civic virtues is a really big and important long-term project for the United States and actually for all democracies. And it's my contention that it's, it is the thing that we could work on together with other democracies because the same debate is happening in other countries. I mean, it's happening in England, it's happening in the European Union, which actually has some regulation on the books now that will come into effect in the next couple of years, which will begin to do some real regulation of social media along these precise lines. Once we're past the immediate emergency of the pandemic and the economic collapse, I really hope that Congress can find some bandwidth to focus on on this because it's a the technology can be solved. The there are ways in which we could do this regulation. There are teams of there are academics who are thinking about it. There are proposals to be made. But what there hasn't been until now has been the real will to do it. I mean, it's almost like you know, the 1890s and the monopolists were in charge of the railroads and the banks and the oil companies. Um, and everybody, you know, sat around and said, well, that's too bad. It's really a pity that there are all these monopolies, but there's really just nothing we can do about it because that's just, you know, that's just reality. And that wasn't true. I mean, it was possible to reform the monopolies and it was possible to create antitrust law and it was possible to make capitalism more civilized, you know, in that in that era. 
And it is possible to change the rules of the Internet. I mean, the Internet has changed over time and evolved because of decisions that people have made, both in the government and outside the government. And we can change it again. I mean, the, the, there are, you know, it's our Internet. You know, our our rules and our laws and our, our regulations can can shape it. I, I do hope that our political leaders come to see that quickly. And my favorite last question is always what individuals, our listeners, can do, and particularly around this question of your idea of finding uh, common ground, not on the big questions, but on some smaller local type issues with people they might strongly disagree with. What are ways to pursue that? I think for people who are maybe um, have a little more equanimity than I do at this stage, or you know, maybe I will in six months. But you know, what are some ways to get involved in things that you think will have that kind of soothing effect? So look for organizations that have mixed membership, charities or local NGOs, um, local municipal organizations that you can work with where you'll be in contact with people who have different ideas from you or who have a different political orientation from you. I mean, it's always a, a useful thing to do. And uh, yeah, of course, even as I'm advising this, I realize how hard that can be depending on what community you live in. People that you know or people who are um, whose orientation is different from you seek ways to communicate with them. And And by the way, people who are um, caught up in the QAnon cult, um, think very hard about how to help them get out of it, um, because that's a that's a that's a much more dangerous and insidious version, you know, version of this problem. Generally speaking, finding ways yourself personally to engage with people on the other side of the political spectrum is, uh, you know, can can only be useful. It sounds like good advice to me, and and uh, thanks for the conversation today. Thanks, Jacob. That was the historian and journalist Anne Applebaum. She's also, as you know, a co-host of this show. I hope that conversation sets the table, as it were, for the weeks ahead, as Anne and I continue to explore aspects of the problem with other guests. Today, we briefly touched on the role of social media in all this. Solvable will continue next week with an in-depth conversation with the man who invented the term filter bubble, tech entrepreneur and social activist Eli Pariser. We'll discuss how social media platforms are contributing to our political and cultural rifts. We'll also explore ways to rethink the digital worlds we participate in. One idea Pariser suggests is for digital designers to think more like successful urban planners. I hope you'll join us for that conversation. Solvable is produced by Jocelyn Frank, research and booking by Lisa Dunn. Our managing producer is Catherine Girardeau, and our executive producer of Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Special thanks this week to Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Emily Rostack, Maya Koenig, and Khadijah Holland. Solvable is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us. It really helps to get the word out. You can find Pushkin Podcasts wherever you listen, including on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. 
Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.